This is the Henry's Child Podcast. Am I crazy or am I just raving? I am super excited for today's podcast because we're getting someone on the Am I Crazy or Am I Just Raving podcast that I've been really wanting to get for a long time. And as you know, it's Jace Edwards. And Jace Edwards was a part of the Henry's Child family back really from its inception. And he's got some really great stories. And this is a very fun and very exciting interview that we got to do with him. And so Andrew actually is the one that took the reins uh, in interviewing Jace. And we did this when we played our last show, which was in Winnemucca, Nevada. Now, before we get into the interview itself, I did want to do just a few logistical things. First off, I wanted to thank everybody that came out to this festival in Winnemucca. It was absolutely fantastic. We did three shows in four days. It was a complete whirlwind, and it was just an amazing, beautiful time with a bunch of new fans who, because of Jace Edwards, knew our music already. I mean, I am not kidding. There is nothing like going and playing to what I would consider to be a cold crowd and having them sing along with songs. I mean, these are people we've never met before. So it was a very fun and very cool experience uh, to do that. also got to give a special shout out to Corey for driving all the way from Eugene on his motorcycle, or I should say riding all the way from Eugene on his motorcycle. He got to see a couple shows, and it was awesome to see him. Super surprised for him to show up, but Corey, you're the man, dude. I, I worship you. I think it's great. We also got some Listen Closely shirts done, and we have a few left over from the show. Those remaining shirts are actually up on Bandcamp, and we have both men's and women's shirts available. And the Listen Closely is just the cover for the yet-to-be-actually-officially-released CD that we did last year in April. And so uh, if you want to uh, get a Henry's Child shirt, go to henryschild.bandcamp.com and click on the merch button on the very, very top of the page. One other thing of interesting note is that Seven Second Circle is now on Spotify. In fact, the new EP called Longitude is on Spotify. We also have physical CDs that you can purchase. Those also can be found on Bandcamp, which you're able to find by going to 7secondcircle.bandcamp.com and choosing the Longitude EP. Uh, The reason that I mention this is, if you don't know, 7 Second Circle is really three-fourths of Henry's Child with a different singer, a singer named Brian Forrester, who we've known for ages. But we finally have another physical CD to follow up the Divide record. It's very, very good. We're actually starting to get some good reviews on it, and we're starting to get a few more monthly followers on Spotify. So that would be great if you could go over to 7secondcircle.bandcamp.com and check out the latest EP called Longitude. I also want to give a special shout out to Dwight and Nikki Wallace for actually executive producing that record. And it's only three songs, but what an amazing three songs they are. I honestly think that the song Summer in Your Eyes is probably the best thing that we've ever written. So I will let you be the judge of that. You can also hit up 7secondcircle.com for our link tree and be able to find all our socials there. 
So anyway, this is an epic interview and an epic conversation from two guys that just adore each other. Uh, Before we get into it, I do want to say that I had almost four hours worth of material to go over. So I'm actually going to go ahead and break this up into two distinct sections. And at the end of this particular one, which is going to be slightly longer than the next one, it's just broken up according to subject. So we have two guys who adore each other, who really like, I mean, they do an amazing job going back and forth. And he talks about his couple drug trips and kind of how he decided he wanted to do music. And so it's very, very insightful. I mean, any fan of Henry's Child is going to love this episode. Now, one slight caveat is we actually recorded this at Jace's studio. So two two things really quick. Number one, uh, his the, the actual live feed is in the room behind us. So sometimes when there's like hardly any talking, you'll hear a little bit of a radio and some music going on in the background. That's his live feed that was happening at the time. So that was kind of uh, unavoidable. And then number two is, normally I record these with two separate mics on different tracks, and this was actually just one single track. So sometimes it may sound a little bit like they're kind of talking over each other, and that's just because I couldn't really uh, edit that down quite like I normally do. But you know what? It's a podcast. It's the Am I Crazy or Am I Just Raving podcast, and we are all about quality content. I mean, this is really, really good stuff. So if you're a fan, you're going to love this. Enjoy this conversation with truly the voice of this podcast, Andrew and Jace Edwards. Well, coincidentally, I'm sitting here with the man who just read that intro, that intro that's been going for, we got 70 podcast episodes now. Finally got in the same room with the guy. It's only taken us 25 years, Jace. It's been quite the clip, hasn't it? Indeed. Jace Edwards sitting with us today. An outstanding, fantastic friend who is just as passionate about music as we are. And I'm super excited to do this because I saw him for the first time in 25 years yesterday. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I got to see uh, something that I hadn't seen in 25 years, which was some of the greatest performers take the stage and uh, really just leave it all up there. You guys played amazing last night. Thank you, man. It was Thank uh, you. it was a privilege. It, it not only was it great to do this show, but you know, after what's happened happened in the last year and every show being canceled to finally get up there and just really let it go. I mean, um I was riding that endorphin high until I passed out at one o'clock after being over at your place for two and a half hours. <laughs> but uh, it was fantastic. Loved it. And it I'm looking awesome. forward to tomorrow. So yes. But uh, so, this is an interview with, with you, my friend. Let's. Uh, I'm going to start with some commonalities you and I have. Okay. You know, we've had a, a fun conversation here the last couple of days, and I had we have a couple of things in common that I had no idea about. Yeah, one of them I really didn't even uh, have a clue about that we had the same kind of uh, background in training. Indeed, a little bit. But I, I'm going to start with. Uh, I'm going to start with military aspect. Right. I think it's unusual for uh, people in our positions, musicians for the most part. There are some, without question. But you, uh, you are a Marine, a Jarhead. Oh, yeah, yeah, Semper Fi. But you started before that, though, ROTC in high school? Yep, did ROTC in high school. When I first got into it, I was in, uh, I had just moved to Oregon, Roseburg, from <clears throat> Seattle. And I was kind of like an outsider because, you know. Um, you went into shock. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I, think, I think I put a lot of people into shock. <laughs> I believe that. <laughs> you know, first of all, they didn't wonder, they, they wondered why, uh, you know, a little blonde hair, blue-eyed white kid was talking the way he did. And I got called all kinds of names for that. And, you know, I was like, okay. And that just, you know, made me want to, you know, fight everybody. And then um, <laughs> I had a, uh, 
I had a wrestling coach who said, uh, you know, well, first of all, I had, a, I had a math teacher who became a wrestling coach because I was trying to fight everybody. And um, he said, one, you're too small to fight everybody. And two, if you're going to fight everybody, you better know how to do it. So why don't you come join the wrestling team? And while I was there, um, he recommended that my next year mm-hmm. that I check into this ROTC class they had at the high school no that problem. was available. And I, and I did. And it was like one of those things that was at the beginning. It was like, okay, whatever, you know, ROTC. You know, it's kind of mm-hmm. like you get to where you I mean, I know for you, you were at the college level. So right. you, were, you were different. For you, it was vested interest. There was... It was a means to an end. It was. It was... Truly. You were getting an education in, yep. in exchange for the service. For me, I was, I was in high school, you know, trying to dodge like real classes. And I kind of fell in <laughs> love with military history. Sure. And at the same time, I'm a... You know, you said I was a Marine. Well, my adopted father, because I'm half adopted... He was a Marine, and he was a 12th generation Marine, wow. which would make me the 13th generation. The lucky generation. Yes, very much so. <laughs> yeah, so his father, great-grandfather, all the way back, all the way back to, you know, Tun Tavern. So I always wanted to be in the military, and, I, and you know, I was like, well, I want, actually, I wanted to go to military school. You know, I wanted to go to boarding school, you know, get away from family, not be living with a stepdad. Instead, you ended up in Roseburg. And instead, I ended up in <laughs> Roseburg in ROTC. But when I realized that ROTC was actually something that could give back and be beneficial, that's when I started trying at it. And so I kind of rose up the ranks rather quick. My junior year, I became a, a captain. So I, was, uh, I had my own class, you know, my own platoon. And then my senior year, uh, when I was, because I graduated early, I was 17, I became a cadet colonel, and, uh, or a cadet lieutenant colonel. And I was in charge of the whole brigade at school. So I had, you know, the whole school was under my command. And every year we joined up with six other schools in Fort Lewis, Washington for a little bit of a training up there. Exercises. Right. <laughs> and there we formed a brigade and they formed a hierarchy staff there. Well, my senior year when I was 17, I went from lieutenant colonel to full colonel, a uh, cadet colonel. And for two weeks, I was in charge of thousands of kids. Sounds like it training. sounds like it was fun. It, it, was, it was an intense <laughs> learning experience. I'm sure. But the one, well, I, the one thing I learned out of it was sacrifice. Interesting. Because when you have people under your command, you're responsible for them. And there was a couple of times where something happened logistically and say there was a meal short and we're on an exercise. Okay, well, the way I look at it is that means I don't eat. Every, everybody else eats. If there's one meal short, I'm going to take the short meal. Servant leadership. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. You know, and, and that was what I learned a lot there, and that was kind of like something that I tried to take with me, you know, into the future. But a lot of the lessons we learn, mm-hmm. we often forget, and it takes certain <laughs> things in life to remind us. Indeed. Memory flashbacks, we call those. Yes. <laughs> yes. So then, yeah. did you enlist? Yeah. I okay. went in. Uh, I graduated at 17. I graduated on Sunday. I was in boot on Monday. Got out of boot camp uh, that summer, and then... It was right during Kuwait. So uh, I went in thinking that I was going to go overseas to Kuwait and, you know, fight there. Well, it wasn't a fight. They were were what? Surrendering to journalists. I I was about to say, I don't think that was a fight. Yeah, that wasn't a fight. That was a surrender fest. But that was the thing. They brought all of us in, Mm -hmm. and then nothing happened. And so all of us get out of boot, and we're all ready to go to our next phase of training, and now we're being told that all our lives are going to change. And then they uh, taught you how to blow things up? Uh, yeah, well, that, that became my that became my caveat out of that was that um, uh, was that okay? So 
you're not going to go become infantry. Instead, we're going to send you to combat engineer school, and you're going to learn uh, demolitions and basic construction. And I'm like, okay. And so I did that. And then um, when I decided that I wanted to, um, well, I was given the opportunity to go to college. Uh, so my whole active duty time, about a year, if that, and most of it was wow. training. Got it. You know? Yeah. And so they came to me and said, okay, well, here's the deal. We got too many people in the Marine Corps. And you did all this in ROTC ahead of time. I, I, like, when I graduated boot, I graduated as an E3. So I'm oh. getting paid two great pay grades higher than everybody else anyway. You know, I hit corporal by the time I was 19. By the time I was 21, I was an E5. I was a sergeant. And that was when I, that was when I finished up. And by that whole time, when I left the Marine Corps, it's because I got into radio. Okay. But, so but what, yeah. it, what introduced you to radio in the Marine Corps? Uh, the LA freeways. No. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, um, that was great. <laughs> I went to, uh, I, I was going to college. Um, when they sent me back to school, mm -hmm. um, I had, I had won a, uh, elect, or not electronics. Yes. Electronic scholarship at Umpqua Community College in Roseburg. Nice. And so I went there, did a term, lost my scholarship because I didn't take any electronics. I, I took theater arts and uh, um, <laughs> journalism. And so they said, yeah, no electronics, no scholarship. And the, by this time, they put me in the reserves in the Marine Corps. Okay. And I was stationed in Salem. And so, uh, which that's a combat engineer unit out there. They're a heavy equipment and a demolitions unit and a bridging, bridging unit, I think. But while I was there, they said, okay, well, if you want to go to school somewhere else, you know, feel free, just tell us and we'll transfer you to a new unit. Awesome. So I get, I get accepted at El Camino College down there in uh, Southern California. I go down and join a Pasadena unit, and they say, yeah, we don't have any combat engineers out here, so you're going to be retrained. So I became a 7212 Stinger gunner operator. And so I fired, that sounds fun. fired missiles. That sounds fun. But here's the thing. Now, you're a musician, so you would I understand am. this. And this is what's really beautiful about the shoulder-fired missiles. There is a double locking mechanism in the nose cone of this thing, you're not even supposed, I'm probably not even supposed to talk about this. The Stinger missile. I'm sure it's on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, I hope so. So, uh, but, it, but it locks on in two different ways. But it's a gyroscope in the front, and it spins, and it whirs. Oh. And when it hits a tone, you get this lock. And there's a certain tone it hits. And you could tell the people that were in training that just couldn't play an instrument or, you know, didn't like music because they had the hardest times getting that tone and it was like as soon as you heard that tone it was like oh man hey tommy oh tommy's in the room folks yes. sorry about that <laughs> tommy we need to find that tone it's got to be a sample on one of our songs gotta find that tone <laughs> <laughs> gotta find that tone <laughs> but yeah so um so that was how i ended up in uh in radio was i was down there in pasadena going to school back and forth got at it. el camino college and i'm listening to the radio one day in traffic um i'm listening to uh stern and he says uh, he does a live read, which I know what a live read is now. Back then, it was like, oh, he's doing, he's just talking about this place. And he does this whole shtick on uh, the Academy Radio Broadcasting in Huntington Beach. Well, well, I'm going to go check that out. So I went down there, and I did a voice test, and they called me back and said, hey, man, listen, uh, we, really, we, we normally only take two people per, you know, whatever, which I know it's a sales ploy, but made me feel special. And I thought, okay, I'll go check this out, you know. Got my, uh, got my loan, and at the time, though, at the time while I was going to school, being a Marine, 
um, I was working at a pool hall, and I was working construction. Uh, the pool hall I worked at, um, I worked two ways. One, I worked because I was the guy at the front desk uh, issuing out the balls. Two, I worked with three other guys, and we were hustling people. And what we did is we would travel up and down Southern California to different pool halls from San Diego up to Santa Cruz. I can verify this audience. I, uh, I played pool against uh, Jace a couple times. He was really kind to me and let me get close, but I don't think I ever, somehow I never quite beat him. <laughs> I get lucky. I do. I get lucky. Sure. But, but it, uh, um, it was in doing that that uh, I ended up with, uh, I ended up screwing up real bad. It was right around the end of my time at the Academy Radio Broadcasting, my last week there. I had to do my final exam, which I did uh, in drag. Um, <laughs> and then I found out my, my vocal coach that I was doing the exam for was gay, um, which that was really interesting after I sat on his lap to finish off the song. So the final exam in vocal coaching is you had to sing the wedding song. Okay. Do you know the wedding song? I'd... Pardon me, is everybody here? Because everybody's here. I want to thank you all for coming to the wedding. Uh, I do not know the wedding song. Okay, I can't sing it as well as I used to, but... Because you used to practice. Right, I used to practice. But there's uh, three breaths you're allowed to take. It's, um, you know, I think it's a good 40 seconds on one of the stanzas that you just have to rattle through. That was the final of the class? That was the final for this vocal coaching class. It was vocal coaching. <laughs> but it was Hollywood that's, vocal coaching. That's he was great. He, he was a Hollywood that's, vocal coach. That's I mean, so I'm great. Serious. It was so Hollywood I, I, vocal I, I, You know what I mean. Yeah, I got you. That's mm. great. But yeah, so I did, uh, I did the whole thing wearing a dress, and I sat in his lap and sang the last part of it, and, uh, and then after the class, I found out he was gay. Didn't know that beforehand, but mm. the other part is, is after the class, I went down to my truck, and my truck had been broken into, Oh. and my pool sticks were stolen. Oh. And this kind of told me, okay, well, maybe my time playing pool is done. And then, uh, about a week later, I got caught by a bunch of guys and uh, got beaten the hell out of for hustling them in pool. And that said, it's time for me to leave L.A. You don't mess around with Slim. No, no. And so, um, and so then uh, that's, uh, that's kind of how I fell into radio was at that point I said, okay, well, obviously playing pool and hustling people is not the right way to go. It's got a shelf life. You know, I really want to try my hands at like comedy, but, you know, got to find a platform. And um, the uh, Academy said, hey, you just graduated. If you want, there's a uh, place up north that is looking to hire a graduate. Fantastic. And so I went to uh, KLYC in Yamhill County in McMinnville. That was your first job? First first real job, yeah. Excellent. I'm going to change the subject. Okay. So so now we got to your first job. But I'm, I'm curious, and this is another commonality you and I have. Yeah. We've discussed this, and I think it's fantastic. And Because I want to hear a story about this, and I, if you want, I'll tell mine. Because I, yes. I think it's fun. This is the band that launched, launched a thousand bands. I, oh, yeah. I read that article in Rolling Stone. The band that launched a thousand bands. I know so many musicians and people that are deeply, deeply into music whose first band was Rush. Indeed. And Rush is a polarizing band. It is. Because Getty Lee has those vocals that people either are attached to or they can't uh, do it. Or they, they can't do just it. get away from. Yep. And I totally understand that. Like I had a woman in my life I loved. She appreciated the music. I play her Livia Strangiato. She loved it. Fantastic. She loved heavy music. She loved tools. She loved Allison Chains was her favorite band. She could not listen to Rush. Right. She even loved the documentary. Couldn't right. listen to it. So I, I <laughs> Okay. I mean I get it. Yeah, right? some people it's just uh, Getty has that Indeed. tone that just doesn't fit with them. So, of course we call them communists. In- <laughs> 
and that's okay. Well, I thought they were socialists. Well, socialists, communists, we all need them but, around. But they're, but they're, but they're from Toronto, right? They help I mean, take, other, take care of other people. Indeed, the people that need taken care of. <laughs> right. So what? What? Tell me though. So how'd that happen? What was the? Because most people I know that are huge Rush fans, and I've got half a dozen in my life, musicians that they they remember the first time they heard them. Yeah. How old they were? What the album was? What the song was? Oh yeah. I mean, I, so what was it? When? When I? For me, it was. I was raised kind of like as a as a small child on Pink Floyd. And then when I went to go visit my, well, I, I, I met my father for the first time when I was 10 years old. And I found out I had brothers, which was interesting. And one of them was a drummer. And he was, uh, his there name's Kenny. He's now a filmmaker, Kenny Winkler. Has a movie out called Kiss the Abyss. He did a little while back. Check it out. It's awesome. Shout out, Kenny. Yep. But he, uh, he exposed me to Rush because I believe he was trying to play Tom Sawyer. <laughs> And of course he was. <laughs> yeah, because every drummer back then was trying to play Tom Sawyer. Because it's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> but but it was that. But um, I so I think it was hearing him just the drumming parts, and hearing Rush just kind of muffled in the headphones oh, as I watched him play, uh, or try to play, you know, this part. And I'm trying to hear the song that's you know, but the first real. Uh, How old were you? I think I was like ten. Perfect. Yeah, I was like 10. Like, one of my favorite songs is Xanadu. That was when, when I found out about your experience with that song. I was like, oh, man. I can Indeed. totally see that. Indeed. So, when um, I was in college at the time. Yeah. I, uh, on an ROTC scholarship. Right. For your Army ROTC scholarship to, uh, for aeronautical engineering, because I was trying to become an astronaut at the time. Then, of course, uh, Space Shuttle blows up. I was at the fence for that. That's crazy. I know, right? It's um, it's quite quite a memory. That was with uh, Krista McAuliffe. Indeed, the teacher that went down. That's right. So yeah. we used to go up. We had a bunch of junky friends. We were, you know, all a bunch of space nuts, and we would go up. It was only about a forty mile drive, and you could park at the fence. And there were people that would bring RVs and vans, and they would sit out in chairs. And you're at the fence, and they didn't care, right? I mean, the, there were tracks that were worn around the fence. This is pre nine eleven, so you were way closer. Right. I mean, over half a mile closer. Wow. Than you can get now. And well, they don't launch them anymore, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Anyway, that day, so we used to go up there all the time when they would launch because they would do, you know, four a year, even sometimes more. But this one was different. There were 10 times the people. It was a complete clusterfuck. And we still got in there. I mean, if you remember the international press for all of that, it was insane. So all of these press vans were everywhere. And we're just sitting there. And we're a bunch of college students that are there with a case of beer. I'm quite serious. And right. like in a cooler. And we have these Chase Lounge chairs. And we get up on top of my friend's van and lay them out and watch the shuttle go up. Oh, I mean, it was awesome, right? And get drunk. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was great. And then try to drive home slowly. And this time, we're, we're in the same spot. But it was just 10 times more people. And it goes up. And then we see it explode. Now, at the time, for the first 10 seconds, nobody knew if it actually exploded. Because if you remember, one of the rockets... Right, and it looked like it kind of disassembled. It, it could, I was it, watching on TV. Everybody remembers for about yeah. 10 to 15 seconds, you think that that booster is the actual shuttle. That was a, that was a premature separation, right? Right. And everyone's waiting. I mean, the crowd goes, makes kind of this weird screaming breath sound for a second. Wow. And then... The announcer says it appears that as though the space shuttle has exploded because there was these loudspeakers outside, and there was utter chaos. I can't even tell you. The screaming, the, the bands, all the press, it was unbelievable. And again, I cannot say this strongly enough. I'm 18 years, 18 years old with a beer in my hand, 
in a chase lounge chair on the top of a van. It was Florida. It was a different time. It, well, no, it's <clears throat> that's still. I think that's still Florida that to this day. Florida. It's still Florida. <laughs> sorry, Florida. No, not sorry. Don't be sorry. Indeed, in, indeed. Well, after that, um, my uh, my dream exploded because I was uh, wanting to be an astronaut. Oh, that's all right. I mean, you know, hey, life changes for a reason. Yeah, it, right. Well, Your pool sticks get stolen for a reason. See, and but the thing is, is is you know, I remember watching that, and as you describe it, I remember remember when that happened. I was it, I was kind of like going, dude, you know, the, like space was, you know, yeah. every kid wanted to be an astronaut. Everybody yeah. wanted to go up into space. I still wanted to do it. They just stopped doing it. Right. They just stopped sending them up, so it was no longer a possibility. So the the military actually let me out of my scholarship. Really? Let me walk away. You have a track when you have a scholarship. Mm-hmm. My track was taken away. Right, so That's they tried to get they tried to get me uh, going to well, I mean aeronautical engineering. This they tried research and development, and I'm like, oh, so I can build a better bomb? Mm-hmm. Ooh, a more efficient killing device? You know, I'm gonna pass on that. Yeah, I don't, I don't I, see you building things that I, I, kill people. Yeah, I just that doesn't sound fun. Yeah. You know, I mean, let other people do that. That's fine. I've got my strengths. That's not one of my strengths. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, my heart wouldn't be in it. So started taking a lot of drugs. Right. You know, which is always an option at that point. Um, oh, not, not, not quite yet. Went, went to airborne school. That was fun. Oh, yeah, airborne school. Yeah. <laughs> so that was fun. I did some military stuff. Um, I thought I would threw, threw myself into it for a year that it might be fun. So I got the call. Well, what was airborne school like? I mean, because, like, you know, you weren't, you weren't obligated to service, but you no. were going through and getting this. I was in ROTC. Yeah, but you were around all these people obligated to service. So the difference was everyone there when you're a cadet, you, so they made cadets score 300 on the PT test. Right. You remember that, right? I mean, so that was not easy. Uh, and they made us all be in really good shape. And there was a reason for that. Because the Sergeant Airborns knew that someday, a couple of years, we were going to be officers. Right. So they just abused the fuck out of us. Yep. We, we were uh, kid idiots. Kid idiots. Yeah. Okay. And this, what's great about summer airborne school is it's multi-branch and multi-service, right? So you, we had an Air Force captain. I mean, he was a jet fighter pilot going right. through his airborne, you know, his airborne training. Getting okay? wings. So we had two, we had two Navy SEALs in there. They didn't talk to anybody. We tried to get them drunk. It didn't work. Uh, <laughs> anyway, just saying. And we had yeah, a couple of, bunch of Navy guys and we had a whole bunch of Marines, and I've always found it fascinating because my biggest memory of that is the Marines were such assholes. I mean, <laughs> thoroughly, thoroughly. They were never cool. They were always jerks. And they loved, they loved abusing the cadets because oh, they knew we were going to be officers too, right? Exactly. Oh, you guys think you're so smart. You know, that, oh my God, oh my God. So I have to ask you, Jace, you were a Marine. Yeah. Yeah, why were you such an asshole back then? Come on. You were trained that way. <laughs> there you go, right? <laughs> part of the you were trained to be an asshole. Yeah, that was, it, was, it was called Asshole 304, I think it's a class. <laughs> and I think it starts off with reminding everybody else that they're not Marines, is I think the way yes. how that works, is, a, is step one. And then once everybody accepts that they're not Marines, then you remind them again. And, you know. Yeah. It just progresses from there. <laughs> Sorry, that's it's It was great. It was great. It's great. It was just, it, it was always, it's so funny because I love you, man. I always have. You know that, right? I mean, we first met, I had no idea. Right? right. You didn't talk, we didn't talk about this stuff. No. And, and then Hell, find out you I were. Think I was talking about my, uh, I was talking about my girlfriend all the time. Which one? Uh, I remember yeah. several. Yeah, there was, there was a few. Indeed. <laughs> I just didn't know It was a long other. time ago. Well, <laughs> why, why no? Is that I, horrible? 
I, why didn't you, I know two of them did because I was in the room. Yeah, but it's all right. That was horrible. <laughs> anyway, it uh, what happened was I ended up uh, taking a lot of acid over the course of a of a winter break right. with my with my best friend in the world. He was back from school himself. Uh, excuse me, not back from school. He was failing out of school. One of the <laughs> smartest one of the smartest men I've ever known. Oh man. Okay? And we are we are standing on top of his uh, the building he lived in, one o'clock in the morning flying and uh he tells me you know i'm gonna go into uh the air force get the gi bill and I'll become a doctor he told me that okay and i said yeah i think i want to be a rock star right <laughs> and that's when that started so he went and uh, dropped out of school and joined the air force went on the gi bill and uh, now he's a doctor now he's a doctor <laughs> i'm dead serious that's awesome <laughs> and uh Went back to school because I was obligated with the uh, with the scholarship at that point. They did not let me out of it. I was, right. you know, wandering in the in the. I won't say the desert. It was wandering in a swamp, in Florida, taking a lot of acid, and had a moment where uh, I was listening to Xanadu during the second verse by myself on five hits of acid. I do not recommend that to anyone listening to this. This right. is a full disclaimer. <laughs> five hits of acid and alone is typically not a good choice. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> Just say, so you know, word and, to the wise. And somehow my brain broke down the second verse of that song and put it back together in my head. And after that trip, I had the unwavering belief that I could write music even though I could not play guitar and could not sing a note. <laughs> but, okay, but when did you start singing then? About two years later. Okay. Dropped out of school. Um, so had to, had two to, years to get from that point to get to... Two years, maybe three. I, um, I then kept taking acid. Take too much, took too much acid. Yeah. Anyone that's done that understands what that is. So it took me about six months to a year to get my brain back together again. Right, right. I'm okay. quite serious when I yeah, say yeah. that. You know, yeah. uh, anyone that's been in any sort of recovery understands what I mean. Yep, yep. Okay. Yeah. But I got it back together and then picked up a guitar and started playing and whipped out. I mean, I'd been writing words for 10 years, so I started using that. But it was rush. It was that moment. And I, it's a vivid memory. I have I've always had unwavering belief. I'm not the greatest musician. A guy like Rich, I mean, he's a monstrous musician. Mm-hmm. Okay, I mean, uh, the, the creativity that comes out of his fingers, and I don't say it lightly. He's absolutely unbelievable. You know, uh, Tommy's an accomplished musician. I um I can barely play guitar, and I can sing. At the same time, I just knew in that moment I could write songs. I just knew, and so it's very it's hard to explain, and it. I don't mean it to sound arrogant because it's not because it, it, no, it's, it's been true. proven to be true. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's so, true. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, I can I can sit here and go through lyrical breakdowns on some of your pieces. Hmm. Hell, we could turn this whole podcast into a whole different direction where we start playing, uh, you know, let's talk lyrics. But let's not do that. But I, no, but I do have one question musically that All I right. do that I've always wanted to ask you. Oh, wow. Springing it on me. Yes. I tried to give you prep before this. You're springing it on me, you dick. Well, <laughs> see, he's still see? an asshole, people. <laughs> see? He's still an <laughs> asshole. Semper Fi. So, <laughs> um, no, but uh, do you remember the first song that you ever wrote? I do. Uh, because I've had the. Uh, I was lucky to uh, play in a band with Rich, of course, my, my brother, and a fantastic cello player named Dale Bradley, and I brought the song to them. It had the chords and the words. It was done. I mean, I, play, I can play it myself, right? It's two chords and some really good words and a, a fun melody, and I played it for them. They're like, absolutely, let's do it. They love the song. 
Wow. So I got a chance to record it. Yeah. So I have it forever. Now, um, uh, who was the song for? What was it about? Mm. Oh, wow. Well, of course, it was about a girl. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, and how old were you when you wrote it? Uh, the first one that, yeah, let's see, I wrote that poem. Yeah, that is the earliest one. There were pieces in Reasonable Doubt that are lyrics before that, but no, it's a... Uh, so she, uh, I was literally sunning myself on our deck, okay, out of okay. the house we were renting. And I was, I, I won't forget this, of course. I was laying there naked, trying to get a tan on this pale body of mine. I know you can appreciate Didn't that. Didn't want to have tan lines. I know, I know you can appreciate that. <laughs> and she comes out there and pulls a chair up next to me and breaks up with me. Seriously. Whoa. <laughs> Okay, it just so you know, it was great. Uh, it was ladies, great. <laughs> never break up with a guy when he's naked, because that just sends them into a whole different mental spin. <laughs> Wait a minute, hold on, hold on here. <laughs> what do you mean it's over? I'm ready, and you're saying, "Wait." What's? I would actually recommend ladies to do it. <laughs> do you know why? Why? Great song. Gonna... A great song came out of it. Great song came out of it. Right. There you, there you. Ladies, if you want to create great music, you break the hearts Ex- of great men. Exposed in the sun. Exposed that's that's the name. That's that the a name na- of the song. Exposed in the sun. Nice. <laughs> Naked and stricken, exposed in the sun. Oh. Reaching for shade while I'm watching you run. Oh, nice. <laughs> yes. Anyway, let's Good. get back around. That's yes. a great question, man. So I want to ask you this. Yes. What was the greatest interview you ever did? So oh. uh, you've interviewed hundreds of musicians, correct? Yeah. Oh, God. And yeah. some of the some of the greats, some that yeah. I'm sure are stick in your brain, and some you have long forgotten, and that's yeah. okay too. Some. What I is mean, what is the one that you are most proud of? The feeling you got the person to open up. You you really thought it was a great interview. Something you might actually listen to every once in a while. Well, I listen to a piece of it every once in a while because it. Uh, it was it was a real honest moment. Um, Beautiful. But it was uh, uh, I got this opportunity to go to uh, Philadelphia. I was working in New Orleans at the time, and there was a dozen of us from around the country that did Mandatory Metallica that were chosen. And wow. so I did a Mandatory Metallica feature, which I'd been doing for at that point 10, 12 years. I missed my plane. <laughs> of course um, you did. Yes. <laughs> Because, well, I was the night guy, and so they had me wake up early. And, you know, it's hard to wake up early when you've been up all night drinking. That was New Orleans for you, though. But I missed my plane. I convinced a stewardess, who was a Metallica fan, to let me on it on, on the seat. Like, it was supposed to go to somebody else. Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh, no, no, I'm giving it to you. You can get on. you got to go interview Metallica. And so I get there, and I'm about... By the time I get there and I rush from the airport to the place, I'm 20 minutes late. You know, I missed uh, Sol- Sol- uh, Sully and uh, uh, Shannon from uh, Godsmack. Um, and I got my other half of my Godsmack interviews. But then it came around to Metallica. And I thought, okay, it's going to be maybe one person who's going to come and talk to each table. No, we got 15 minutes alone with each member of Metallica. And this was right after uh, Newstead quit. And this is when you had... Um, uh, Some kind of monster. Uh, yeah, some kind of monster going on, and mm-hmm. it was the whole awakening thing. And when I was working in Vegas, I uh, I did this mashup of this spoken word piece from Henry Rollins and this Metallica song called uh, "Fade to Black." And I used to do this mashup on the air, and I and, and 
Um, I did it on my mandatory Metallica, and then I do it live in clubs and stuff like that. And uh, but I made a I made a actual produced copy because I used to do it live, take the two different albums and just blend them together, and you know stop one while the other one's playing and type thing. You know, I put it I put it together on a disc and I gave it to each member of Metallica, <laughs> except uh, for Trujillo because Trujillo didn't play on that song. Sure, uh, <laughs> but but the thing is is that when I when I was talking to Hetfield and we were where I give him this thing and, and he's like, okay. And he's kind of looking at it from time to time. And at first it's like, okay, I think I just set, I, I set him off. This is not good. You know, mm-hmm. I've put him in a bad space. You I've, surprised him. I've, well, I fucked up his stuff. What? You know? Oh. I didn't, you know, that's what, that's oh, what sure. I'm thinking while I'm, while I'm talking to him. Right. And then I, I, I looked at, I looked at him and I said, uh, James, can I please ask you a question about Cliff? And he's like, Cliff? This is out of left field. Why are we talking about Cliff? Cliff has nothing to do with... But in my mind, you've gone through all this history because of Cliff's passing. Sure. All this other stuff with Newstead, with Trujillo, everything else with, you know, Claypool almost becoming your funky-ass bass player. You know, all that wouldn't have happened, you know? And so um, we started talking about Cliff, and and I started probing him with these questions, you know, about stuff like... uh, do you remember what his favorite food was? Or, you know, is there anything that you've ever smelled that reminds you of him? You tried to make Cliff present for him. Right. And he, he says, you know what? He goes, you know one thing that whenever... He goes, I don't know, this is weird, man. I'm, I'm actually thinking about this. And he starts going off talking about foosball. And about him and Cliff playing foosball. And it was one of the last foosball matches they had against each other in Sweden. Cl- uh, Cliff was winning. And James didn't want him to win. And so he reached over and he slammed the opposite controller and it hit Cliff in the nuts. And he said, he said it was the most amazing thing, man. Cliff wasn't Cliff. He came around that table and that finger came into my face and he said, don't ever do that. And I believed him. (laughs) But it was like this real honest moment between this guy, you know, who's sitting here going, you know, and and, and, and meanwhile, I'm sitting going, I'm talking to the biggest rock star in the world. And here he is talking to me, talking to me about this nut shot on Cliff Burton, you know, playing foosball, playing foosball because he was losing. So he cheated. Now, now here's the, here's the, here's the cool thing. So this was on the Madly and Anger tour and that was Philadelphia. So I was working New Orleans at the time, which was about six months down the road. So six months down the road, we're now in New Orleans. I've got to go get a guitar signed for the station, and I've got to, you know, and so I get to bring my wife and all the listeners in for the meet and greet opportunity, right? And my wife is wearing this, uh, this uh, purple sweater, and she, she has met everybody. By the she, way, Jace has, Jace has a beautiful wife. Oh, she's awesome. I just, I just want to make that clear. Oh, thank you. Okay. <laughs> she's, she is. She's awesome. But she, um, she's met everybody and doesn't care. <laughs> and half the time she will tell them, I really don't know who you are and really don't care, but whatever, right? That's why she's still with you. Right? <laughs> so Metallica, James Hetfield comes out, and she becomes this deer in headlights. Mm, and got- she becomes this like, uh, uh, uh. And James comes up, and he, and he sees me, and I'm thinking, okay, um, how am I going to make that connection from what we talked about before? How am I going to, you know, and he comes to me, and he sees me, and he goes, he goes, you, Philadelphia, how you doing? I go, I'm doing great. How are you? You know, and I got this guitar for you to sign. And oh, by the way, this is my wife, Kelly. And he looks over and he goes, oh, hi, Kelly. Oh, I love your sweater. And Kelly looks up at him with these big, big bright eyes and goes, purple is my favorite color. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) That's the only thing she could say. And Hepfield kind of, he looks at me and he goes, 
awesome. I like it too. And he signs the guitar and stuff. And he and uh, and what got me though, and this is why it turned that other interview turns into my greatest interview, mm-hmm. was he said to me as he was leaving, he said, "Your mix, good stuff." And I was like. It. You listen to it. Dude, that's awesome. You actually heard it. You actually remembered me. You actually, you know, and it was mm-hmm. like, you come across a lot of these guys. Like, I've interviewed some people four or five times, and they don't remember you. You know? Um, you well, know. well, the thing is, I would say this then, Jace. Yes. Perhaps it's because you asked Mr. Hetfield the right questions. You got, right. It, you got him present, right? I, you got him in the moment thinking about his friend. And so that's something that I'm sure most interviewers don't ever do. Which was a beautiful thing, right? Yeah. Maybe these other people that keep forgetting you, you didn't, you didn't find that question. I don't mean that in a negative no, no, way. No, no, no. I don't well, mean that in a negative way. It's just you, but also, you, you click with someone. But also Hetfield, and, and this, is, uh, this is, was my observation of him then, and I kind of made it to him then, but he's a, he's a full circle rock star. I mean, this guy has gone from being uh, abused, obscure, sure. in pain, oh, yeah. to non-helped, non-resourced, to resourced, biggest name in music, to complete breakdown, mental, physical, banned, exposed, to healthy and mental and present in the now again. I mean... It's a rare arc. He's a full circle rock star. It's a a rare arc. I totally get it. You know, and and, and that was the other thing, too, is that he opened up a lot about um, uh, the whole thing with Mustaine. Oh. Um, about when they fired him and everything. Because, uh, I mean, if you don't know the story, um, basically Mustaine was so drunk all the time that they walked into his hotel room uh, over on the East Coast and they said, you're out of the band. And he says, okay, when's my flight leave? And they handed him a bus ticket. And that was so that he could think about it all the way back to San Francisco. <laughs> and so um, he really, he actually regretted that, you know. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, so best interview ever would be, uh, would be Hetfield. All right. Well, I got to ask you again the other side of that coin. Oh God, the worst ever. Now I know you've got one. I'm sure you got one. Somebody walked out, walked out on you. Oh yeah, but it's yeah. also got to be one where you know you just you just blew the interview. Well, well, the one that walked out on me, I didn't know I blew the interview. Oh, but that's when I learned an important lesson about interviewing, which is of course uh, yeah. at least a little bit of prep work. Um, at least a little bit. Um, That's what so, I did, Tom. At least a little bit. And interviewing is interviewing is an interesting art because because interviewing is um, it's all about connection. So you find a connection, you make a make a connection, you try to get that connection to expose other connections, and find a way to fo- do follow up questions on those. So um, I uh, I thought that I had a connection with this one artist because I drank at a place that he used to play at. That's not a connection, folks. That's called drinking at a place that a guy used to play at. <laughs> it doesn't mean he has good memories of that place either. Um, but, so, I get to fill in for the Dr. Ken Martin on KZL, uh, which was a legendary station for its time back in Eugene, or in Eugene back in the day. I mean, from the 70s, 80s, 90s, KZL was it for Oregon. Dominant man. station. Yeah. And Ken Martin had been the driving force of this station. Mm-hmm. He was the program director. He'd been doing afternoons and everything. And, and the fact when the corporate radio came in and fired him indiscriminately was horrible. Uh, you are a horrible company, Cumulus. Um, or Citadel, whichever one it was. They bought each other, merged, whatever. So anyways, I get to interview Curtis Salgado. Indeed, legendary performer. Curtis Salgado, 
uh, staple in Oregon, especially when it came to blues. And if you're if you're a fan of the Blues Brothers, of course, uh, the old uh, the old movie story going about is that um, uh, Max's Bar down there in Eugene was where Curtis and was it Robert Cray? No. Not back then. Not back then. It was Curtis Salgado and somebody else. But they, Curtis Curtis Salgado played and somebody else played guitar. And they did. Uh, they were doing like a duet blues thing there. And it was Belushi who would be there drinking. And this he is was, apparently. He was drinking at Max's because he was filming Animal House. Right. That's right. In 76. Yep. And at the same time, uh, he was also waking up at random people's uh, couches, wasn't he? And he, he quite famously did. Yes. Walked into the wrong, uh, wrong, wrong house. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think he knew. Passed what, out. I don't think he had a right house. <laughs> <laughs> is there a right house? I don't think there ever is. But so, anyways, the whole thing is, is that Blues Brothers, amazingly successful shtick. People don't realize that originated from Curtis Salgado. Yep, that was his shtick to begin with. That was he it. wore the black suit, the long tie, the sunglasses, he the was, hat. It he was, was the yep. Blues Brothers. Yep. yep, you know. And so I opened up this question about that, and he didn't say hi, bye, go to hell, nothing. He just stood up, turned around, walked out. Do you know why? Because he's a little miffed off about that whole situation. Do you know why? Well, they stole his act. Exactly. He never got a single dollar. They never. wouldn't even. They wouldn't even acknowledge it. Right. Dan Aykroyd finally did in the mid eighties. Yeah, but that, that was, was long after, after Belushi. Long was gone. after Belushi was gone, yep. Aykroyd admitted it and gave at least a little ego smoothing to Mr. Salgado. But he still couldn't get over it because it was his thing. It was. They, they made. They made millions and millions and millions of God. dollars on that. It was the number one album, yep. the so number one man. movie, based on what he created. Exactly. And he got, and he got he nothing did, for it. Didn't even get an acknowledgement in the credits of the movie or the album. Not even a byline. I mean... I mean, I understand why he got up and walked out. I really do. See, I was thinking that, man, maybe you want to tell your side of the story. But, you know. Uh, KZL was my first job into rock radio. Oh. And, um, what year was that? That was 92, 93. So, so right before we met. Yeah, right before we met. I mean, so, li- literally months. Uh-huh. Okay. So I was working at... Um, I was working at this little place up in up in uh, McMinnville called KLYC okay. Radio for Yamhill County. Uh, they had me. Uh, it was a uh, KLYC Radio for Yamhill County. Yeah. Good lord. That's how they made me say it. Uh, they they made me made me pinch my throat and do it that way. It was an AM station. They said it comes out better. Whatever, dude. Good thing you graduated with a wedding song. Yeah. I'm sure. I know. I'm right? sure that helped. Yeah. No. That way, if it wasn't for Julie Andrews, man. So, um, but um, so I was there and I was hating my job. I was doing. I was doing sales during the day. I was on the air for like a few hours, and then I was voice tracked, uh, where I would record like vocal sessions for nighttime broadcasts. And then I had to go work at in Izzy's Pizza four days a week as a waiter. Three days a week, I was going to Portland and I was trying my hand at comedy, uh, trying to be a stand-up comedian. And then um, that's a tough gig. Yeah, and. All of this, I was making with all the jobs put together. I think I was clearing around nine hundred dollars a month. <laughs> and then you found Kazel. Yeah, and then I found Kazel. But the way I found Kazel was I went down there because well, I, I wanted to work there. I knew I wanted to work there. I wanted to work rock radio, and it was the rock radio station. I wanted to live in Eugene, so I had to go back to Eugene. Um, a buddy of mine that I was in the Marine Corps with in Salem from years past had moved to Eugene. And was he an asshole too? <clears throat> yes. 
Okay, good. Yeah, we were. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, um, how'd you get to Z Rock? Oh well, okay. So well, KZL, um, I drove. I I drove in. I drove into town, hearing them saying, "Okay, dude, I, this is the station I'm going to work at." Mm-hmm. I found out the program director, Ken Martin, got off the air at two o'clock, and so okay, so I I drive in Monday, two o'clock, and and actually I'd come over the weekend to see my friend Troy, and I just haven't. I had been there on Monday morning. I thought, okay, I'm here. I'm going to go there and apply. I applied, gave him my tape and resume. He says, "Great, thanks. We have nothing. See you later." Okay. Well, the next Monday. I happened to be in Eugene again. I said, well, fuck this. I'm going to go do it again. So I brought my resume and tape to him. Nope. Sorry. Okay. Well, you know what? Now it's a challenge. Eight <laughs> weeks. Wow. Every single week, same resume, different tape. He never listened to one of my tapes. Eight weeks. Every Monday, I was there standing. When he got off the air and walked by that front desk, I had a tape and resume in my hand. And finally, one day, he came out with a paper up. And it was covering his face, and he just walked by and said, "Follow me, Jace." And, and that, folks, is how you get a job. And that's how, and that's how I got my job at uh, at, K, at KZL. Now, Love it. Z Rock across town. Because mm-hmm. um, it was soon thereafter. You weren't at KZL very long. Well, I was at KZL for oh, up until they bought Z Rock, and then and, they transferred you. Right, and so there's a there's a cardinal rule in radio: you're not allowed to work at competing stations. So I worked at KZL under one name. Uh, KZLI was J.D. Cross. Over at KZZK, my name was Bobo Spiewak. Good Lord. So I'm Bobo Spiewak on KZZK. I'm J.D. Cross on KZL. KZL calls me in, and, and I'm thinking I'm in trouble that they found out. And they said, no, we're turning KZZK into KNRQ, and we want you to do nights. And I'm like, great. So I went back to my name, Jace. There you go. And that's when, uh, that's when Jace Edwards actually came to Eugene, was Got when it. I uh, was on KNRQ. Interesting. When we wow. actually, there was four of us that started that station. Okay. So. So then let's keep going. Yeah. Let's see. I, I, I want to I find out how you got to deciding you need to live in the middle of nowhere in Winnemucca and run your own station. So. Okay. So let's see. Here. Let's do the, we'll do the, we'll do the you, hyper. Can, the can hyper me, one. All right. Let's see okay, how quick so this goes. I was at KNRQ for a number of years rather successfully. And then I got Indeed. plucked. Um, you were popular. Um, yeah, I, my show was. I loved. I loved working Eugene Radio, and I and I got to tell you, man, uh, Eugene during the '90s was a decadent place. And just so you know, the station wasn't <laughs> paying me dick. So in order for me to be able to make means end, um, I had to take side jobs as a strip club DJ because I could go work at Jiggles, Great Alaskan Bush Company, Silver Dollar, uh, Club fourteen forty four, which are all the places I worked. I remember. And of course, uh, what was the one? The underage one. Lollipops! Oh man, I how did that there. happen? That was fun. How did that happen? Oh man! So, uh, well, I walked into Great Alaskan Bush Company the day that I got hired at KCAL or KZL. Well, I keep course, the names. Of, of course, K-Zell. you would celebrate by going to a strip club. I who walk, would who would not right? do that? Well, I walked in there and I, I walked in and said, "Hey, I'm going to be on the radio here. I'm going to be moving down here. Do you guys need a weekend jock?" There you go. And they said, "Yeah." And so I just took a shift, and the next thing you know, I'm working at all of them. But it was decadent, and by the I met, way, I met some of those ladies mm, in yeah. your in your apartment. Those were a lot of the. Uh, th- that's a lot of the stuff that we were talking about at the uh, at the practice sessions. Was uh, me being stupid with uh, a lot of that stuff. W- weren't we all? We, we all, th- yeah. It was. I, uh, I don't ever look back and think and think that was smart. That's never a yeah. word I used to describe that memory when I when I go back there. Yeah. No. Intelligent, smart, no. wise. None no. of those words ever seem to apply. No, but exciting, fun, irresponsible, mischievous. Indeed, I like they, all those words. In. I enjoy all those words. <laughs> they co- play. Indeed. Well, you know, man, you're. Um, but yeah. When so, did you see us first? 
I, I meant to, I'm, um, now I'm springing this one on you. Yeah. What was the first show? I'm pretty sure you were sponsoring it with the first time. It you... was KZZK. Yeah. And Logan was our program director. Uh, Logan, Logan Hawks. Logan Hawks. Shout out Logan Hawks. So Logan Hawks, Logan Hawks was an overnight guy at KZL. Yep. And when I started, I started off, they gave me a Sunday night shift where they said four hours of pressing buttons and then two hours of actually being on the air. And then Logan was my relief. Oh. And so my very first shift, well, I'll tell it the way Logan would tell it. Oh, good Lord. Now we got it. We got to link Logan on this one. You're going you're gonna to do some Logan? Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll can tell, you do it? I'll tell this can, way. Well, can, I, can't, I can't do his voice. I can't, okay, okay. I thought I you were going to go I, for I, it. I wish I could do a good Logan Hawks, but I can't, man. He's got that slide. He does. <laughs> but, but no, he had, this whole, he had this whole mission, which was to put me off my guard because I was the new guy on the station. Oh, and so Hazing, they call that. Him and uh, Michael Anthony, the whole plan was that he was going to take uh, Jack Daniels and sprinkle it on him, you know, have have Michael Anthony carrying him, carrying him in, and putting him in the chair, and set the mic up for him, and basically say, "Okay, you set his next record up, and I set his next record up, and you know, and here's Logan, all acting all drunk, just hanging there, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he springs to life and does this amazing break, and then goes dormant again, and you know, and I was supposed to react, I think, a lot differently than I did. How'd you react? I didn't. I just walked away. <laughs> You're on duty now, dude. I'm there's, done. There's no, there's nothing there's nothing quite like a prank gone awry. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, but but yeah, no, Logan and I actually Logan and I ended up becoming roommates. And what sucked was, first, we worked together at KZL. They fired him from KZL. He gets hired on as program director at KZZK. He says, Hey Jace, you want to work at competing stations? Sure, I'll break the cardinal rule. Was that, so I did that. Was that Boba? That was when Bobo Spiewak, which he named me on that one. He also made me dance around in a taco costume one summer where... Um, I hope there's video. And I would dance in the street with shorts and combat boots. So all you saw were my legs and then my tattooed arms coming out of the thing and combat boots dancing in the street as a taco. But anyways, during that time... It was a different time. He said, I'm going to reward you. How? You get to host this show. What show? This show that we're putting on. We're going to have you go up there and do the stage announcements. Really? Now, this time I'd been really green. I hadn't been in radio long, and I hadn't done much stage stuff. Most of the stage stuff I'd done had been on my own doing comedy. So I get up there, and I get to announce you guys. And it was for that, um, it was for that, it was a showcase show or something like that at the Red Lion. Oh, right. Oh, that was where we met you, the Red Lion. Right? See, look at that. Oh. Look at the sparks going off there. Oh, man. It was that That show. That was a weird show. Right? It was good, though. But a lot of people, but it was weird. Well. Yeah, it was good. It was weird. You guys played <laughs> extremely well. I mean, and, and it was like, okay, so before when I first got into radio, I, I got into radio because, you know, I thought I knew more about music than other people. Because You probably did. Well, because it, when I growing up, I, you know, I would search out music because Roseburg didn't have radio stations. I mean, they had country. <laughs> That's not music, you know. <laughs> I mean, let's face it. You know, it, it, it's pretend. But... um when it came to what I was into, I mean, you know, like from from Rush, I had made a severe jump to early Metallica. Uh, from there, Overkill, Testament, Megadeth, uh, Pantera. I, you know, uh, by the time I was graduating high school, you know, I had this real eclectic taste that you didn't hear on anything. Uh, you barely heard it on Headbangers Ball. So I thought I was going to be a rock star. <laughs> Uh, in junior high, I played guitar. I, and I've, I've, been, I've played for years, but I, I, in junior high, I thought I was going to, you know, 
I learned how to I learned I learned some finger tapping techniques. And for about a minute, minute and a half, I'm a god. After that, I'm spent. But for that minute and minute and a half, I can make you believe there's that a, I, I know what I'm doing. There's a joke in there somewhere about your wife. Yeah, there is. I'm trying to Some trying like to land. Where's that that's joke? What she said. <laughs> not, not quite. <laughs> she, she, she loves you too. She loves you too much to say that. But. Right. <laughs> oh no, well, she's honest. Oh, oh, no. love, good, love has nothing to do with that. That's a good honesty. thing. That's a good thing. <laughs> so, but um, but yeah, I always thought Kelly and I thought we were going to be these mega rock stars, and so. You know, and so I started getting into, you know, Ingve Malmsteen and, you know, really getting into this, like, just insane stuff. And nobody else was into that. And, uh, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I kind of got derailed from where we were talking, but... Um, <laughs> Let's go. It was the origins of you getting back into how you got into music. Yeah. Okay. And so when, I went, so when I saw you guys there at mm-hmm. the Red Lion, yeah. right, when I first got into radio... I thought I was going to expose people to all these great bands and stuff that I discovered on my own and stuff Got that it. I'd found, suicidal tendencies and all this great stuff, right? Change addiction. And, uh, yeah, and, and so when I actually got working in radio, you realize that that's not what radio is. And radio is a dichotomy. It's, there's, there's, it's, it's, it's okay, so it's a struggle. It's a struggle between commercialism and giving the public what they actually want versus what they need. So, you can talk to any radio program director, and they will give you, of course, one basic answer that the hits work. You play the hits, people will listen. You'll get the mass audience if you play the hits. Um, One thing that I've always done as a program director, which it took me many years working in radio, working up through the ranks to become a program director and actually get to run my own radio stations and all that and find out the other side of the coin um, not just the ego side that I was living on before. But um, so, you know, y- y- I found that if you expose people to undiscovered music and new music and different genres in an intelligent way, not just throw it at a wall and say, oh, look, here's a whole bunch of eclectic stuff. Boom, listen to that. No, give it reason, you know, play the hits, but then say, hey, by the way, you know what? I dug this one up. I want to share this one with you. And don't hit them with too much of it, you sure. know, let let it come in a little bit at a time because let's face it how many of us have gone to a concert and it doesn't matter how good the band is but if you don't know three songs in a row you're gonna you're mentally gonna wander it's difficult you're absolutely right you're mentally gonna wander if you don't if you don't recognize one of those three songs you're mentally gonna wander now um that reminds me of a programming aspect of a three song snapshot um where any radio station you should be able to define that radio station and its genre by a three-song snapshot. Right. If you can't, that station is a little bit... Eclectic. Right. And that's not, al- that's not, not always a good, a good thing. thing, and not... it's not always a bad thing. It all, all depends on market, but that's a whole different side of things. But anyways, mm-hmm. so I had gone through this whole thing where I want to introduce people to music. I got disgruntled because that's not what the job was when I, when I thought it was in the beginning. And then I found, wait a minute, it can be... But you have to do it right. You have to find ways to uh, do uh, uh, what I learned back actually at that station at KNRQ, backdoor management. So, for example, back then, I met you guys at Red Lion. Indeed. Um, and I thought to myself, this is a band that I want to expose. And that's where, that's where I'm trying to get to is that watching you guys rekindled my, my, my need of this is my medium. This is what I want to do, right? Very cool. Now, 
Back then, though, I was only uh, on a classic rock station, and I was doing promotional stuff for the other station. I wasn't really on air at KZZK. That was a satellite fed out of Texas. I was just a promotional guy and a local voice. And so when, K- when KZL bought KZZK, they turned it to KNRQ, and it was about that time that it was – I think I was uh, helping out Mike. He was managing at the time, and I was trying to help out do booking. And I was trying to call places. Do you remember that, Tom? And I was trying to call places and get you guys booked at places and yeah, stuff yeah. like that, and um, which I had to walk away from because KZL bought KZZK and said, hey, we're going to turn this into KNRQ. We want you to be our night guy. Now, in radio, and, and the thing is, and, and I probably shouldn't follow rules, but I do. In radio, there's, there's certain things that you're not supposed to do. One of them is conflict of interest. You know, you can't be managing a band and be an on-air guy. Indeed. You can't do that because you can use one platform to help out the other. God forbid. Right. Which no, is why, no one does that. Right. Which is why I quit, quit helping <laughs> you guys and went on the air and started playing the material. Which was a great help. Wh- which, you know. Which was a great help. Which that was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I made a better choice there. <laughs> well, we'll never know. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, what if I would have got you booked on that w- world tour? And and flown the world with us as our Dude. as our manager. Oh, we would have been huge in Europe, um, or at least Belgium, <laughs> Netherlands, Netherlands, Netherlands. Yeah, indeed. So, but no. So, okay. So, so when K, when when it became KNRQ, fortunately Logan was the boss. Unfortunately, soon after, they fired Logan. I remember that. And they brought in. This is what's funny. So, two stations become or one station. You have a. Program director, he becomes an operations manager over the two stations. Filling his place is uh, this person, and then they, which I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus or names or anything like that. But when they fired Logan, they hired her husband to run the other station. Mm. I don't think he was hired there because of his knowledge of alternative music and his groundbreaking, uh, you know, because he came from an easy listening station. So it's hard to come. And knowing this now, it's hard to come from, you know, something that is non-active, like easy listening, and change your entire programming structure to an active programming structure for rock. But anyways, uh, Logan, Logan um, unfortunately, got fired, and I was able to talk this guy into giving me a show on Sunday nights called The Q After Dark. Mm-hmm. And I used that show to propel all the local music in Eugene that you I did. could. You were fantastic. As well as uh, break out some of the, uh, you know, the national stuff that people were still talking about. What was funny was, is I left Eugene and I went to Vegas. And I, the reason I got picked up there was the owner of that radio station in Vegas was at a fishing trip in Eugene and was listening at night. And, we heard, and he heard me do this segment and he called me up and he said, hey, I own these radio stations in Vegas. I want you to come work for me. I'm like really? All right, all right. So now let's do some let's do some radio station hopping. Can you how, how quickly can you go through all the stations how you want? Okay. So Let, so we're we're now in Vegas. We go to Vegas. So um, let's do one. Two, I go to Vegas from Vegas. Vegas. I was at 103.5 The Edge. That flips to Kiss FM, R&B, and Classic Soul. They fire everybody but me and have me run me be this guy on this Classic Soul station. Which I'm like, dude, I'm tattooed, I'm white, and I'm pierced. I'm not what you would call a Classic Soul jock, but sure. I stayed there. Talk a little, I'll talk a little quieter and get a little right. closer to the microphone. <laughs> oh, I did some horrible stuff on that station, too. Uh, but anyways. And then? Um, but then I, uh, I said, screw this. And I finally got him to fire me so I could collect unemployment. And I went on a couch surfing tour. Ended up in Southern California. 
um, on a uh, couch in, uh, in San Bernardino. And a buddy of mine said, hey, the, you worked at the station that the guy who's running KCAL used to run. Mm. And I'm like, okay, well, that's a good enough connection. So I called him up. And he goes, oh, I know who you are. Okay, cool. I'm glad you do. And he says, why don't you come in and uh, try a shot? So, okay. So I, I went in and I did a shift. And, um, and then he let me fill in for a guy. Um, and that guy filled in, or I filled in for him because he went for a two-week vacation. And this was a night shift in Southern California with, you know, I don't know, 8 million listeners, whatever, right? Uh, big station, too. You could hear us all the way from L.A. in the Forum all the way down to uh, out in the desert, all the way almost to San Diego. Huge station. And so um, I went on there acting like I'd been on this station for 20 years. I wrote a show that was a, a very um, in-depth and shocking show. Um, I had uh, I, I basically became um, of a shock jock. Um, I was the epitome of a shock jock for many years there. I did, uh, I did things on the air there that, I, that you can't do anymore. Like, you can't get away with it. Even on, I mean, Stern still tries to, but that's different. That's cable. Didn't Janet Jackson's uh, tit change all of that? Yeah. So, I'm, I'm in Purdue for about six years, and I'm building up this name, and I'm getting all this, this accolades, and then I get picked up in, in New Orleans. And this program director in New Orleans is like, dude, I heard your show. I want you to come to New Orleans and do this down there. Okay, so I go down there, and I'm doing this. And when I say adult radio, it was extremely adult radio. And uh, I get down there, and then Super Bowl happens. Janet Jackson, you know, she flashes her nipple on the air. The FCC wakes up and says, well, oh, we got to attention. Justin Timberlake flashed Janet well, Jackson. Well, he had a little to do with that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, well, I'm just saying. Yeah, clothing, <laughs> ma- clothing malfunction. My that's, a, that's what I heard. Somehow yeah. she got punished, and he didn't. She, yeah, exactly. How does that happen? I, oh, wait. It's a miracle. Oh, wait. So... <laughs> Just, but, Justin must be cuter yeah, Right <laughs> So um, When that happened I had to change the direction of everything I was doing on the air again Which again I'd gone through this thing To where it was all about the mu- music And then when I went to Vegas It became more about personality When I went to Purdue it became a lot about personality And then in New Orleans I got to switch back into music again And um, <clears throat> And the funny thing is Is that Every one of these stations I've gone to, I would bring Henry's Child with me. And I would play, I would play like, uh, in Purdue, I'd play Headlights a lot. I played Honestly. Oh, wow. uh, it was for the different markets. Oh, sure. So, you know, Headlights worked well with in, in Purdue. Um, uh, honestly, worked amazing in New Orleans. What's interesting is you're having a too eclectic rock station is not really a good idea, right? Right. Right. You, uh, and that was our problem as a band, is that on the same album, you could play Honestly and you could play Headlights. I'm like, what genre does this band fit into exactly? Well, well apparently more than one. Well, and, but the other thing, though, is that those songs, especially off of Mumbles and Screams, you know, I mean, you know, I, 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 love, I love the subsequent stuff. And actually, you know, uh, what was it? Drink Me. The original tape. Yeah. You know, um, had all the energy of those kids. That's and that was that no was idea amazing. what they were doing. <laughs> but 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 mumbles and screams is still something that um, I find different ways to incorporate into things that I do. So thank you, man. Um, when I was in New Orleans, I had I was working with this filmmaker, and he's like, "Oh man, we should do it. We should do this uh, this film about you know your radio career." And I'm like, "Oh yeah, yeah, sure, right. No, how about I got this idea 
about this guy being stalked and, you know, he's a radio guy and he eventually gets, you know, taken and all this, you know, blah, 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 blah. And he goes through this, like, he has this, like, really intense, like, you know, this trip. And I'm telling him this whole thing. But meanwhile, all I was doing was telling him my concept idea for what would be a movie for your album. Oh. Because... Every single scene is like, okay, and by the way, I got this band that would be perfect for a song for this scene here. And, oh, by the way, so there's this, they did this cover of, you know when the snake sings in, uh, you know, Jungle Book? And he's like, oh, trust in me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I want to do this whole scene in this, in this movie <laughs> where I'm going on this trip. And it's this song that's leading us. And, you know, I mean, had, had we made this movie. Would have been fun. It, no, well, it would have been a licensing <laughs> nightmare because I would have been coming to you guys going, hey, guys. <laughs> I think our answer would have we been. Got, <laughs> we, need some, we need some signatures and we need to come out with some breakdowns. I think we, I think we might have said yes. <laughs> so, but, but, so then um, so so New, New Orleans, Orleans goes to. Well, New Orleans gets cut because of Katrina. Right. And what sucked was is um, I'd been working all this time to try to get myself syndicated. Oh. And so right before Katrina hit, uh, he was the vice president of Christian Broadcasting. Oh, goodness. And he's about to syndicate a shock jock. And he's syndicating a shock jock because why? Because we make money. So, um, you know, anyways, he, uh, he had me all set to go on five stations. And Katrina hit. Okay. And unfortunately... When Hurricane Katrina hit, I was working in New Orleans. I was on the air that Friday when the, when the hurricane turned. My boss and everybody wow. was drunk at this um, at a uh, club opening. And so I called my boss up, and I love this guy. His name's Sig. And if anybody was ever one of my biggest influences in radio itself, it would be Sig. But, um, but Sig, uh, Sig said to me, he goes, um, he goes dude, you're, you're a broadcaster. You know what to do. You know, you call it. So I turned the station into emergency mode at 7 o'clock at night on Friday night, and we started doing evacuation reports and stuff like that. The rest of the city came on board with theirs at about 9 o'clock, but I was the only live thing because, again, radio being what it has become at that point, I was the only live person on the air in a city the size of New, or New Orleans from 7 to midnight. Every other station in town had something either piped in from another market or was recorded earlier, so nobody in town was talking about this hurricane. Nobody had information going out about it. Our listeners, we, we, we went into this uh, emergency broadcast um, series for like the next 30 hours, and I worked about 20 of them in helping people get out of town, right? Well, then they say, okay, you're not staying. You're getting out of town too because it was supposed to be a team of us that were going to stay. Nope, you guys go. Good. Well, I got my wife and my – or yeah, we had just been married about a year at that point. And so I, I got my wife and my, my cats – in my four-foot iguana, in my Jeep, and we went to Texas. Well, then they didn't let us back in the city for 30 days. And then I get told that I have an act of God clause in my contract. And so the station's going to be off the air. Our tower actually got picked up and thrown in the Gulf of Mexico. Our tower was in Port Sulphur, where the hurricane made landfall. And, um, and by the way, that station I was at, we were huge in Cuba. Um, but, <laughs> but, um, but no, uh, Is that better than Belgium. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, but they fired us or they fired me. And, um, I, uh, I went on what I called hurricane and I, I kind of left radio. I went, to, uh, I went to Canada for, uh, for a few to do some snowboarding up there at Whistler to try to get my head straight. And, um, and that didn't work. And so then I decided I'm going to leave radio and I went to, uh, went back to construction. And so I went to LA and I'm on the um, I'm on a job site, 
and I'm under a house and I'm, you know, here I am now, now I'm flipping 30, you know, and I'm like, I haven't done this since I was 19, you know, it and, hurts. and it's real work and it hurts and it does, <laughs> you know, but, but I'm doing this and I'm listening to uh, Mark and Brian, the morning LA, uh, LA guys, or back then they were, and I'm listening to this. I'm like, God, I can beat these guys. I can beat these guys. And on my third day on that job, I get a call from this guy that I worked in, worked with a long, long time ago. He says, hey, man, we're replacing Mark and Brian in Palm Springs, and we want to replace them with you. And it was completely out of the blue, out of nowhere. Wow. And that's how I ended up in Palm Springs, which is where I ran into you again. We tried to figure this out. Was it 05 or 06? It had to be 06. 06. It sounds right. It's right in that window. Yeah. So was, at, this yeah. Time, at this time, I'm a financial advisor. <laughs> Still am. Oh, well, man. I don't know if you know that. Still oh, I am. Know it. I, I know. <laughs> it's just so weird. I know. I know. You're not the only one that thinks that. Oh, man. I've been, I've been doing this for about five years, and I was at a convention for my company. And it was a training and kind of reward training convention, right? And I, uh, I get there late. I get to the hotel. Got to be in a ballroom at 8 o'clock in the morning, you know, with my bells on and ready to roll for a, for a, a giant seminar. And... I, I, there's a little tab that tells you all the different stations, and like one of the stations was the rock station. I'm right. like, fine, I'll wake up to that. So I set the alarm. This is, you know, pre cell phone alarm. And I set it, make sure the alarm works, turn it off. I wake up, and I did not even wake up to a song. I wake up to your voice telling a story. Oh, gosh, probably. Yeah. Uh, at, <laughs> at six o'clock in the morning, probably. Oh yeah. I mean, I was an early riser back then. Might have been five thirty even. Yeah, back and then I, just, I was on from five to ten. I, I just it was amazing. It was one of those like so surreal coming out of a dream, haven't heard your voice in eight years. Right. Eight years. Yeah. Ninety eight. Seriously. Yeah. Hadn't seen you since then. But it was so I'm like, I wait, what's going on in my dream? Jace Jace Edwards is talking to me in my dream? What is happening right now? Right. And I wake up like, oh no, he's on wait, what's happening now? He's on the radio. That was so great. I've never forgotten that. It was so unique and such a strange, random. Very random, yeah. I've been because you I've called been, me. I did call you. you. I answered the phone and he's like, and he's like, Hello, Jace Edwards. And I'm like, why do I know this voice? And what in the hell is this? I, I looked up the goddamn number and called you, man. And you're like, what? Well, that was great. Yeah, that was awesome. And then, of course, you know what I did after that? So I get off the air that day. And my producer, Tank, uh, then uh, got back-to-back listenings to... <laughs> Mums and screams and clearly oh, yeah. confused. Uh, oh, yeah. That, that, that's great. It was, like, it was like after that, we had to go to our show meeting and plan out for the next show. And I said, okay, well, here's our inspiration for today. I love it. I love it. That was such a wonderful... Unbelievably small world random memory that, that I hear you in Palm Palm Springs. Good Lord. So there you have it. Part one of the interview between Andrew Smith and Jace Edwards. As you can tell, it ran the gamut of a bunch of things well over an hour. And, you know, we've got to a lot of stuff. We're able to talk about a lot of very, very fun stuff. And uh, we're soon to hear in part two about the politics of radio stations and even the challenges of even owning a radio station. And uh, Jace really, truly has created something big in his life. And I, and, I, and I really got to hand it to him for not only doing what he wants to do, but doing it with uh, people in his tribe that, that enjoy and embrace him 
and really he's created a, a very solid ecosystem that I'm I'm super blessed to be a part of. So as just as a quick reminder, as we sort of wrap this up, if you're not on the Henry's Child newsletter list, please consider signing up. It's free. You get an alternative version of Human Being sent immediately to your inbox, and you get, more importantly, on the list to be notified of when new things happen. So please go to henryschild.com, and in the very middle of the landing page, leave your first name and email address, and I will get you on our list. Also, if you like this podcast, please go to your respective places where you get podcasts. Those could be the, the Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify, and hit the subscribe button. That helps us out tremendously if you subscribe to the podcast. And I want to thank you for hanging in there this far with me and being a part of the Henry's Child family. We love you. Stay safe. Keep washing your hands. Keep wearing a mask. And we are going to get through all of this, my friend. Be on the lookout for part two, coming in two weeks. Talk to you then. It came out my mouth.